0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we speak with retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. For more than 30 years, Bishop Spong has been a controversial figure in Western Christianity, asking tough questions about the faith. We talk about his new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy, and we look back at his lifelong quest to give Christian believers a faith that is compatible with the modern world.
1: Stay tuned.
0: Hey friends, before we begin the show, I wanted to take a moment and talk to you about a new podcast from my friend, the Reverend Kat Banakis. It's called The Holy, Holy Podcast, and each episode, Kat takes this big question like dying or careers or how to be single and Christian, and she talks about it with experts from across the nation, sometimes from across the world, and then at the end of the show, she puts it to a three-person panel that includes a representative of the Muslim faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith. It's always a fantastic conversation. I always learn something when I listen to it. And I just love the fact that she's doing it. So I hope that you'll take a look for the Holy Holy Podcast. You can find it through iTunes. You can find it at holyholypodcast.com. You can also find it through our website, csec.org. So that's the Holy Holy Podcast with the Reverend Kat Banakas. Give it a listen. I know. I know you're going to love it. Thanks. Okay. Here we go with the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Shelby Spong. He was the Episcopal Bishop of Newark, New Jersey before his retirement in the year 2000. As a visiting lecturer at Harvard and at other universities and churches throughout North America and the English-speaking world, he's one of the leading spokespersons for liberal Christianity. His books include The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic Reclaiming the Bible for a Non-Religious World, Eternal Life, A New Vision, Resurrection, Myth or Reality, Why Christianity Must Change or Die, and his autobiography, Here I Stand. He lives in New Jersey. Bishop John Shelby Spong,
1: welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. Good to be with you.
0: Well, I want to start out by talking about the provenance of this book because in the very first page, in the very first paragraph, you say, I didn't think I was going to write another book. And so I'm wondering if you would tell our listeners, first and foremost, how did it come to pass that you undertook to write a book, and particularly a book of this heft and length?
1: Yeah. I write a weekly column for an organization called ProgressiveChristianity.org, and I decided in the process of doing that column to take on the Gospel of Matthew and look at it from a very different perspective. And as the columns appeared after a while, it seemed that it made sense to edit them into a book, and so I did. I must say that that's the eighth last book I've written, and I've just signed a contract with Harper for my ninth last book, which will probably come out in 2018.
0: And what will that one be covering?
1: It's titled Charting a New Reformation, and it really goes into the things that I think are no longer believable, and it helps people understand that Christianity is an evolving religion. Uh, We were born as a movement within the synagogue. We then transcended synagogue and became a Gentile movement, about 150 of this common era. And by the 4th century, we had entered into a Greek metaphysical world, and that's when creeds were formed. By the time we got to the 13th century and most of our worship patterns were shaped, we were so deeply dualistic that God and human life were separated, and the worship life at that time still affects our church. But anyway, Christianity is always evolving, and most people think it sort of dropped out of heaven fully written and fully developed, and and they know what the parameters are, and even things like the doctrine of the Holy Trinity and the doctrine of the Incarnation, which people think are bedrock, those are fourth-century additions to the Christian story. So as as we live on the other side of Copernicus and Kepler and Galileo, if we live on the other side of Isaac Newton, we live on the other side of Charles Darwin and Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein, how do you talk about the Christian story in that kind of world? That's what this book will be about.
0: Okay, and that's actually a continuation of, of a great deal of what you've been saying in this present book, Biblical Literalism, a Gentile Heresy.
1: Well, yeah, except the one presently I'm writing is much more just dealing with the theological issues like is it possible for human beings to, to believe in life after death in the 21st century? Is it possible for us to, to have a basis of for ethics that is open and not closed, where we always know what is right and wrong, because I don't think that's possible in our world today. And so how can you be a Christian in the 21st century? It would probably probably come closest to reflecting some of the ideas that I developed in a book called A New Christianity for a New World, but that was 2001, and these ideas do mature over the years, and so they come with a rather different perspective. And your
0: basic thesis is that the things that were believable to Christians through the centuries certainly are not believable now after the scientific advances of the of the 20th century but even unbelievable past some of the the world shifts that we had with Copernicus and Galileo. And That's others.
1: correct. Uh, Chris, the Bible was written in a world that believed that the universe was three-tiered, that heaven was above the sky and the earth was the center of this three-tiered universe and hell, however that was defined, was beneath the earth. And so the the whole Bible comes from that point of view. Uh, In the book of Genesis, they have a story about how they wanted to build a tower that was so high it could get to heaven and they could be with God because God was just above the sky. They had no earthly idea how vast the universe is. And uh, when you get to the birth story in Matthew's Gospel... The idea that God could hang a new star out in the sky to announce the birth of Jesus, it makes a lot of sense in the first century. But in the, in our century, we know that the light that we see from the star was emanated millions of years ago, and it's taken that long to get here. If God really wanted to announce the birth of Jesus, he would have had to plant that star a million or so years ahead of time. And so it becomes so fanciful that it's almost unbelievable. When I deal with people in local congregations, I would say things like, how many of you really believe that a star can travel through the sky so slowly that wise men can keep up with it? And this funny look comes on their faces, no hands go up, because nobody really believes that. Well, in the first century when that story was written, heaven was just above the sky and God or one of God's angels could have dragged a star with no trouble across the floor of heaven or the ceiling of the earth, and at whatever pace it took for the wise men to follow it. But we now know that there were no wise men, and that's a That's a biblical story that's roots are in the Hebrew tradition. If you want to trace that one, you go to Isaiah 60, where it says a king shall come to the brightness of God's rising. They will come on camels, they will come from Sheba, and they'll bring gold and frankincense. That ought to sound just a little bit familiar to people. And you begin to see how so much of the story that we think of as literal history is probably ancient people in the synagogue taking a text out of the Hebrew Scriptures and developing a Jesus story as the sermons. So what we're reading are the sermons of early Christians, and we're not reading literal history at all. We've been fundamentalist in the way we've approached the Bible for so long that people have no earthly idea when you begin to probe these things. Just the dating process, David. The Gospels are not written by eyewitnesses. They're written by the second generation at the very earliest and the fourth generation at the very latest of the Christian movement. And they have all sorts of disagreements, and the story gets gets expanded. Uh, the virgin birth didn't come into the Christian story until the ninth decade. Paul didn't know anything about a virgin birth tradition. He says that Jesus was born of a woman. I submit that that's not terribly unusual, uh, and everybody I know was born of a woman. When you get to, Matthew, uh, to Mark's gospel, the first gospel, Mark has no story of the virgin birth at all. Jesus is a completely human adult male who comes to be baptized in chapter 1, And it's only in his baptism that the heavens open and the Spirit is poured out upon him and he becomes a God-infused human being. And so, you know, the idea that the mother of Jesus, when he reaches adulthood, would go to take him away because he's out of his mind, and that's literal what the text says, is very strange if she's also been one to whom an angel appeared on a hillside in Galilee and said, you're going to be the mother of the Son of God. So we see the layers of how this story developed And it makes no literal sense at all. And if you can only offer people a literal understanding, they ultimately will have to dispense with the whole enterprise. I think there's a better way to look at the ancient story and a better way to understand the Christian faith than to pretend that uh, biblical fundamentalism was ever original to the Christian church. It wasn't.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Bishop John Shelby Spong, about his new book, Biblical Literalism, a Gentile Heresy. And so you've begun to address the issue, but let's define this so that our listeners track what you're saying. When you use the term biblical literalism, what do you mean?
1: I mean people that think the Bible is sort of written by God, literally dictated, and it came down from heaven and divided in chapters and verses – The Bible grew like every other book. Paul wrote between 51 and 64. That's the earliest layer of the New Testament. Mark is dated in the early 70s. Matthew in the early to mid 80s. Luke is harder to date. But I date Mark, uh, Luke, somewhere between the late 80s and the early 90s. There are some scholars that date Luke as late as 140, though uh, I need for people to at least know that. And John is dated about 95 to 100. And we can put those Gospels and Paul together and we're, we're looking at a period of history from 51 to 100, a 49-year period. And you can see enormous changes that take place over that period of time. We have no records that can get beyond. We can't get back to 30 to 51. But I'm convinced that the Christian story lived and was passed on in the synagogue and nowhere else. I don't think it's conceivable that it could have been passed on anywhere else. And the reason for that is when the Gospels finally do get written, They have Jesus wrapped in the Hebrew Scriptures. They have Jesus subservient to the liturgical life of the synagogue, and that could only have happened in the synagogue. You know, people think today, well, everybody had a copy of the Bible. Nobody had a copy of the Bible. Bibles were terribly expensive. They were community property. There's no Gideon Society to put one in your hotel room, a service that I must say I use quite frequently because it's awful hard to travel with Bibles in your suitcase. But uh, it's it's just fascinating to see what people think and what reality is. And when you tell them things like the earliest gospel does not tell the story of Jesus appearing to anybody as a resurrected person. Mark just has no story of the resurrection. All Paul has, and he wrote before Mark, all Paul has is a list of people to whom he, quote, appeared, unquote. And it's interesting that that word appeared is the Greek word apthe, O-P-H-T-H-E, from which we get ophthalmology. But it's also the word that they translated God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. So you have to ask yourself, what does that appearing mean? Is that is that insight? Is it second sight? Is it is well, how literal is that? And it's interesting that Paul gives us no details. But he does give us a fascinating hint because he goes through this list of those to whom this risen Christ has appeared, and he says it's Peter and then the twelve, and that's interesting because Judas Iscariot is still among them. Paul doesn't seem to know that Judas was a traitor, which is another interesting development. That's a later development in the Christian story. Then he appears to 500 brethren at once. We have no earthly idea what that's all about. And then, interestingly enough, he appears to James. There's a great debate about who this James is. And the overwhelming consensus of biblical scholarship is this is James, the brother of the Lord, who was a leader in the early Christian church in Jerusalem but who's been sort of downplayed in history, again, for theological considerations. The other options would be James, the son of Alphaeus, who's supposed to be one of the twelve, and James, the son of Zebedee, who's supposed to be one of the twelve, but they were neither one as significant a leader as James, the brother of Jesus. And then he has the apostles, and people wonder who in the world they are. He's already mentioned the twelve. Well, in the early church, the apostles were those who were sent out. They were the missionaries. It's James and Peter who are compared in this story in Mark, and then it's the twelve plus the apostles. They're different categories. And then the most exciting and unusual one is that Paul says that he was the last one to whom the risen Christ appeared. Well, the best estimates are that Paul's conversion came somewhere between one and six years after the crucifixion. So the idea that this was a physical appearance becomes nonsensical. I mean, what did this physical body do for one to six years, however long it was? And why is it that nobody else saw him? So, and, you know, even Luke, when he talks about the risen Christ appearing to to Jesus, suggests it was a vision on the road to Emmaus, I mean, yeah, on the road to Damascus, and uh, and not a, a physical sighting at all. So it opens up all the stories about what the resurrection really was. And it's fascinating when you get to the fourth gospel that the first person who believes in the resurrection is the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the only identification he's got. And he never sees the body. He sees only the fact that death could not contain him, the tomb could not contain him, and he skips from that immediately to a faith position. Again, I think the beloved disciple is not a figure of history. I think he's a mythological figure that the Fourth Gospel created as the ideal Christian, and so he's the only one that goes with Jesus to the cross. He's portrayed as leaning on his breast at the Last Supper—that's his first introduction— He's the one who goes to the empty tomb. He's the first one who believes. And it's, uh, he's sort of the portrait of an ideal Christian and, uh, in the fourth gospel. So I think if once you break the boundaries of literalism on the Bible, then it opens up into being a very exciting and different kind of story.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Bishop John Shelby Spong about his new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, David Dalt here. You may be wondering why we take time out of the podcast to have these little minute-long breaks with the crazy music underneath, The answer is simple. We are trying to design the podcast so that it pays for itself. And so these are places where someday we will have some advertising. Now, let's say that you have been interested in getting into some sort of podcasting advertising platform where you want to promote your product. We would be a wonderful mid-market solution for you, uh, particularly if you want to reach an educated audience that really, really likes stuff about religion. Uh, So that's what this is here for. So if you would like to learn more about advertising with us, you can go to AdvertiseCast.com or you can contact us through our website. We would love, love, love to work with you. Thank you always for listening. Okay, back to the show. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Bishop John Shelby Spong about his new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. Now, Bishop Spong, within the book, you make the Gospel of Matthew a real focal point. And yes. I, I'm wondering if you'd tell our listeners what it is, particularly about the characteristics in Matthew, that made it such a good foil for the argument that you're making. Well,
1: it's, he's the most Jewish of all the four Gospels. He leans heavily on Mark. He incorporates about 90% of Mark into his gospel, and then he expands Mark where he thinks Mark is lacking. He corrects Mark. It's always interesting when I'm dealing with biblical fundamentalists to say, well, Matthew certainly didn't think Mark wrote the Word of God because he felt free to change it and to edit it and even to correct his grammar from time to time. You don't do that to God's grammar. You might do that to Mark's grammar. But he's also – Gospel of Matthew is placed in the, in the canon of the New Testament first because they thought it was the primary link between the Old and the New, There's some fascinating things about Matthew's Gospel that most people don't embrace because most people see the Gospels as an homogenized, a little like sausage. You know, you never know quite what the parts are that that are in it. Maybe you don't want to know. But uh, we homogenize the stories. We don't know what Matthew creates and what Mark creates and what Luke creates and what John creates. But when you isolate Matthew – He introduces the virgin birth that had never been heard of before. This is the ninth decade. This is hardly original. He introduces Joseph for the first time. Nobody's ever heard of Joseph. There's not a single written word about Joseph prior to the ninth decade. He's the only one, or he's the first one, that puts content into the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. All Mark says about the temptations is that Jesus was in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil for 40 days and 40 nights. Matthew tells you exactly what those temptations were, and if you study them, they, they're they almost identical with the trials that Moses faced when he was in the wilderness. So you have to begin to suggest that maybe this is not literal. Matthew is the only gospel writer to give us the Sermon on the Mount. And a lot of people are quite sure that was dictated by God. Even Harry Truman said he wanted to run his presidency on the basis of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew is the first one to introduce the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer had never been heard of, and we keep saying that it originated with Jesus. Well, it's interesting, Paul never heard of it, Mark never heard of it. He's introduced in Matthew. Luke gives us a truncated version of it. If it was the Lord's Prayer, I wonder where why Luke got the ability or the strength to decide he'd edit it, and then he edited it in a very truncated way. He sort of chopped it up, and then it disappears. It's not in the fourth gospel. So if it really was given by Jesus, we've got some very irresponsible gospel writers uh, to have to deal with. And there Mark gives us two parables that nobody else has given us. One is the parable of the wise and foolish maidens used to be called the wise and foolish virgins. There's no way to indicate how anybody would have known whether they were virgins or not. So they become maidens as we've got a little bit more sophisticated. And he gave us the parable of the judgment, which nobody else has, where the sheep and the goats are separated. And that great line that in that parable that says God's judgment is not on the basis of how much you believe – or even how frequently you go to church, God's basis is and only on whether or not you're able to see God in the presence of another human being. Indeed, the least of these are brothers and sisters. And Matthew, he gives us more biographical data on Judas than anybody else, and it's fascinating when you trace data down, and it, it seems like it's all drawn out of other traitor stories from the Old Testament, but I haven't got time to develop that, but that's a, a big piece of this book. And Matthew is the first one to give us stories where the risen Christ literally appears to somebody in his text and he describes that. He does this two times. He's the first gospel to have the risen Christ say anything. Now, if the risen Christ is gonna if this is a literal story, and the risen Christ has just one thing to say to the world, it's gotta be thought of as terribly important. And it's an interesting one It's what we call the the Great Commission or the Divine Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel, which we Christians have interpreted to be a missionary charge to go convert the heathen. There was no church when that was written. There was, Christianity was part of Judaism at that time. So it wasn't a missionary expansion thing at all. I think it's a very profound story. I think the essence of the Christian story is that we ought to move out of our isolation into one human family. And Matthew tells his story. He wraps it in what I call an interpretive envelope. He puts a star in the sky when Jesus is born. Because the star doesn't shine over just the land of the Jews. Everybody in the whole world can see the star. And the wise men, the magi, who are Gentiles, they come to that star. There's something about Jesus that drew the human family together. And then when he gets to the end of his story, he gives you the other half of his envelope, and he has the risen Christ say, now that you understand who I am, you've got a responsibility. And what is it? You've got to go quote, into all the world. That's out there where the Gentiles live. That's where the unclean and uncircumcised and unbaptized and unsaved people live. You've got to go to those that you've denigrated and looked down upon, and you've got to say to them, you too are part of the love of God. It's its a call into human oneness. I think that's why Matthew was so appealing to me. In the early church, it was clearly the most popular gospel. It still is. If you take a poll of Americans and say, what is your favorite gospel? Matthew always wins, and John comes in second. Luke is third, and Mark is always last. And that's sort of interesting since both Luke and Mark have copied almost all of Mark into their books. Matthew more than Luke, but significantly in Luke. So it's interesting just to follow those paths. I found the Gospel of Matthew really fascinating. And the man I studied with in England, this was his key too. His name is Michael Goulder. And his key was to use Matthew as the way of opening up all the Gospels to a non-literal understanding. And I hope that's what I'm able to do in this book.
0: You also mention early on in the book that really to be able to understand Christianity – particularly early Christianity, but you even go as far, I would venture to say, the whole of Christianity. You can understand that best if you understand a Jewish technique of reading called midrash. And I want... Absolutely. If you, could you tell our listeners what midrash I, is.
1: Well, first of all, let me say the Jews were storytellers. Most Middle Eastern people were storytellers. And they incorporated truth into their stories. But the, everybody understood that the stories were not literal, but they were still things that incorporated great truth. And so the Jews were were doing this. They hadn't yet invented the technique of telling people this is a story by saying, you begin by saying, once upon a time. If we do that in the Western world, we know we're going to hear a story. But the way the Jews did it was that they used wild exaggeration. And everybody hearing that would understand that this is a story. So they talk about building a tower so tall it could reach up to heaven. Well, they didn't know what a crane was. The farthest they'd ever gotten to heaven was to climb up on a mountain, This is a wild exaggeration in that period of time. The story of Jonah being thrown overboard and being swallowed by a great fish and living in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, that's an exaggerated story. I would also suggest that so is the story of the Red Sea. If you put the dimensions of the Red Sea that we know of together with the biblical account of how fast those Jewish slave escapees made it, they had to average 12-minute miles. Now, you're talking about maybe 15,000 people, maybe more than that, some of them elderly, some of them on walkers and canes, and some of them pregnant, and some of them with little children who never walk in a straight line. They always run around in circles and go crazy. And you're talking about averaging 12-minute miles. I run every morning on my running track, and I can't average 12-minute miles uh, at my age. Uh, I may do a 15- or 16-minute mile. But the idea that this this unorganized group of gypsy-like people escaping slavery in Egypt could navigate the 20 miles of the Red Sea in 12-minute miles is a huge exaggeration. And I think we ought to begin to to hear that and to understand that. And the Jews had this story, or this tradition that they called Midrash, in which they would not think anything about telling the same story about more than one Jewish hero. For example, in the biblical story, we have Moses splitting the waters of the Red Sea, Then a little bit later, we have Joshua splitting the waters of the Jordan River. Then a little bit later, you have Elijah splitting the Jordan River, so he can go across on dry land. A little bit later, you have Elisha splitting the Jordan River, so he can go across on gray. That was a story that appeared over and over again. Now, do you suppose that's what God did, that God had nothing to do in the ancient world except to split every body of water that impeded every Jewish traveler? Or are you learning something about the fact that they retold the same story Because they were trying to say, the same God we found present in Moses, we found in Joshua and Elijah and Elisha. And I think if you want to bring that into the Christian story, you go to the story of the baptism. Jesus is brought up to the edge of the Jordan River. Now, he didn't split the Jordan River, because that's already been done three or four times. That's no unique. And Matthew and the gospel writers were trying to portray Jesus as greater than any of the heroes of the Jewish past. That was their faith conviction. And so they exaggerate. So what does Jesus do? He steps into the water, and he doesn't split the water, he splits the heavens. Well, if you're Jewish, you would know that from the creation story, the heavens meant a firmament that separated the waters above from the waters below. Jesus splits the heavenly waters, and they rain down upon him as Holy Spirit, and that's what living water and Holy Spirit are always identical. That would be so clear in the mind of the Jew when they read that story. And then what does Moses do after he splits the Red Sea? He wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. What does Jesus do after he splits the heavenly waters? He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. That sounds to me like he's the author is saying anything Moses can do, Jesus can do better. Remember that old song? And so that goes through all the story. Now, if you once crack this code and begin to understand this, it never would occur to you as it would not have occurred to those original Jewish readers to think that we should treat this as our literal history. The Gospels are interpretive narratives. They're not photographs or tape recordings of what Jesus said or did at any point in his life. And you break the code, and suddenly you enter it on a whole different level. What's going on in our society, David, is that people see the Bible, but they don't know how to read it. So those who can't deal with the modern world— just close their minds to the modern world and they become biblical fundamentalists, and that's growing. You have the mega churches, and they're all basically fundamentalists. The other movement in the Christian faith is that those who do embrace the reality of the modern world, and this is seen particularly in the millennial generation, and they can't twist their minds into first century pretzels in order to make faith statements about what they read in the biblical story. And so they just walk. The fastest-growing organization in the Christian West today is the Church Alumni Association, and they're far bigger than the fundamentalists. The retreat to fundamentalism, which we've seen in our country and and in our—you know, today we see it politically in all sorts of interesting ways. But that retreat is out of fear that there's nothing there, so they've got to cling desperately to this literal framework. Because by far, a faster-growing movement is those who are walking away from organized religion because it simply doesn't translate into the world that they live in. It makes no sense to them. And it's sort of reached the zenith in the millennial generation because they don't even raise the religious questions. I start my next book with a quotation from my daughter, who has a Ph.D. in physics from Stanford, And she said to me on one occasion, Dad, the questions the church keeps trying to address are not questions we even ask anymore. That's how irrelevant this institution's gotten to the world that my daughters were living in. And so I'm trying to bridge that gap. I'm trying to find a way to engage the the modern minds of men and women with the essence of the biblical story. And you've got to crack the literalness of the way it's understood before you'll ever get to that level of truth. I find it very exciting.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Bishop John Shelby Spong. He's the author of the new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. A moment ago, you said at several points, variations on the phrase, break the code, crack the code. And you subtitle your book, A Gentile Heresy. When we look into the history of the development of Christian theology, and I'll, I'll admit right now, I'm not a biblical scholar, but I do have some training in theology. One of the the historical heresies was Gnosticism and the notion that somehow the Gnostics had the secret key to unlock the proper reading of the scriptures so that those who read them could be enlightened. And so when a person who is sort of more comfortable with a sort of more contemporarily traditional form of Christian faith hears you speak – why is what you're saying not just a contemporary form of Gnosticism, some secret key to unlock the, the code that everyone else is blind to? Well, if, if
1: uh, you can use the word unlock, and I do, and if you go back to the, the thing that does the unlocking, the fascinating thing to me is that what you're discovering is what the original intention of the authors was. It's not as if you're putting a new thing in there. Let me illustrate that by the story of the ascension of Jesus, that doesn't come into the Christian story until Luke writes. It's not, a, it's not a thing that anybody else talks about. The only thing Matthew says the after resurrection Jesus is his promise that he will be with them always. That's all he says. Now, where do you get this idea, and what does it mean? Well, literally, it makes no sense at all. I remember having a conversation with the astrophysicist Carl Sagan before he died, about two years before he died. We were on the staff of a conference together in Washington, D.C., And Carl was a fascinating man. He was brilliant, there's no question about that. He was Jewish by his own ethnic background. He was an atheist by his own religious profession. And he loved to sort of tweak what he called ridiculous religious ideas. And we had some interesting times together. And he came bounding across the room and he said, Jack, have you ever thought about what the ascension of Jesus looks like to an astrophysicist? And I said, no, Carl, I haven't thought about that, but I knew I was going to have to because we were then engaged. And talking with his hands, as he always did, and they shook more than anything else, he said, do you know that if Jesus literally ascended into the sky, and even if he traveled at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, more or less, he has not yet escaped our galaxy. We know today that if you go up in the sky far enough, one of two things happens. You either achieve orbit, or you sink into the infinity of space. You don't quite get to heaven. We also know that it takes light traveling at approximately 186,000 miles per second. It takes light more than 100,000 years to go from one end of our galaxy to the other. So if Jesus went to God by going up into the sky, in 100,000 years, even if you traveled at speed of light, he would not have escaped the boundaries of our galaxy, and our galaxy is only one of billions and billions of galaxies in the universe. So that literalism makes no sense. You know, I could say to Carl then, well, but if you were Jewish, and he is Jewish or was Jewish, but if you were a literate Jew, you would know that the story of the ascension of Jesus is the story of Elijah being retold by Luke. And you take him back to Second Kings chapter 2, and you tell them the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah went to heaven but he was propelled to heaven with a good deed of aid. He got a fiery chariot that came out of heaven and picked him up, and he had fiery magical horses that dragged the chariot, and even the ancients, they didn't understand about gravity, but they knew you couldn't just rise up into the sky without some propulsion, and so God creates a whirlwind that comes behind the the chariot. So between the magical horses and the magical chariot and the whirlwind, Elijah gets out of this world up into the sky. Before he leaves, his single disciple, Elisha, says, "'Master, I'd like to make a deathbed request of you.' And Elijah says, "'What is it, my son?' And he says, "'I can't succeed you as the prophet of Israel if you don't endow me with a double portion of your spirit.' And Elijah says, "'I don't know that that's my gift to give, but if you see me ascending into the sky, then you will know that God has granted your request.' And so Elijah zooms up into the sky in this chariot, and Elisha sees, and Elisha knows that he's going to be endowed with a double portion of his spirit. And when he goes back, he's got Elijah's power, because he has Elijah's mantle. And then the sons of the prophets greet him, and they say, they interpret it. See, the spirit of Elijah now rests upon Elisha. Well, Luke takes that story, and he magnifies it, because that's what the early followers of Jesus did. They magnified every story and applied it to Jesus. So Jesus ascends into the sky, but he didn't need any help. He didn't have a fiery chariot or a whirlwind. He ascends on his own power, and he doesn't just pour out a double portion of his human spirit on his single disciple. He pours out the infinite power of God's Holy Spirit on the whole gathered community in sufficient amount to last throughout the generations. It's a big, magnified story. Luke and his followers, nobody would have thought that that was a literal story because they knew the background. They knew the story from which it came. And what we've got to do is to sort of help people see the truth in the biblical narrative that's underneath the literal words of the story. If you literalize the story, you will kill it. I'd say cracking the code, but I think what we're doing is bringing back to people the ability to understand what the original authors meant. They were all Jewish writers, even Luke. And it's interesting that Luke is the only gospel writer that makes Jesus go through every one of the initiation rites. He gets circumcised on the eighth day, he gets presented in the temple on the 40th day, and he gets bar mitzvah or some sort of puberty rite. It wasn't literally a bar mitzvah when he's 12 years old when they take him up to the temple in Jerusalem. And only Luke puts that because that was Luke's experience. He had come from a Gentile background into the Christian faith. I mean into the Jewish synagogue. So he had to go through those initiatory rites. And so I think once you open the story up, with just plain understanding its origins, that people can see things that they have never seen before, and you don't get caught in the intellectual boundary of either saying it's literally true or it can be true at all, which is the sort of modern dilemma that gives us fundamentalists on one side and increasing secularity on the other.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with John Shelby Spong, ...about his new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. You're listening to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We'll be back in a moment. Hello, Dave Dalt here. Earlier in the show, I talked about podcast monetization through advertising. But let's say that you, as a listener, don't have anything to sell right now... ...but you still want to support Things Not Seen. We can make that happen. Here's how it works. You could go to our thingsnotseenradio.com website or csec.org and make a one time donation. It would be tax deductible and that would be wonderful. But you can also support us on an ongoing basis through a platform called Patreon. Now, here's how that works. You set the amount, $1, $5, $10, $1,000, whatever an episode of Things Not Seen is worth to you. And every time that we release a new episode, you would be charged on your credit card for that amount. You set it. You set how long you do it. It's completely up to you, but it really would help us. So please go to our website or go to patreon.com and set it up. And we thank you always for listening. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong about his new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. So earlier in the conversation, you noted historically that the Gospels were written in a 49-year period from around the year 51 to around the year 100. That's not quite right. The Gospels
1: are written in in about a 30-year period from the early 70s to 100
0: So we've got that period where the corpus of of what we call the New Testament is largely written. Yes, And then within about three to four generations, we have a group that follows that we could call the martyrs, the people who are dying for this story. What did the Jewish writers know that the martyrs didn't know? Because it seems as if when we look at, for example, some of the martyr narratives like the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, they're taking some of the things that they are seeing and hearing about the truth of Christianity very literally about the afterlife and these other sorts of things. So even within that period of time, something seems to get lost. Am I tracking that correctly? I
1: think that's correct, although I would suggest that most of the martyr stories are pretty exaggerated. I don't think there was a great amount of that. Uh, but every one that happened, they told it and retold it a thousand times. They were great hero stories. But what happens is that Christianity is born in the synagogue. Paul never left the synagogue. Mark never left the synagogue. Matthew never left the synagogue. There was a split about the year 88. So Luke is the only one that might be on the other side of the split. But Luke is so dependent on Mark, who's on the previous side of the split, that he doesn't reflect that. So John is the only one that really reflects the split where the Christians who were Jews were excommunicated from the synagogue, and that took place about the year 88. We can't pin that down as as literally as I'd like to. It could be 87, it might be 89, but it seems to have occurred at a a thing called the Council of Jamnia. And what happened is that uh, the Jewish Orthodox Party could no longer tolerate the revisionist Jews who became the Christians, so that's uh, but after this happened increasingly after the synagogue excommunication increasingly the people who were followers of jesus were not any longer jews they tended to be gentiles paul started this but even in the period of paul from 51 to 64 they there was already an appeal to the gentile population from this thing called christianity And the appeal was that Judaism offered people a concept of one God who made moral demands upon people. And that was being compared with the gods of the Olympus who were busy dying because they were having affairs with every woman in town and and living very strange lives and had lost respect. The great mystery religions that came about later had not yet been fully developed. There was a religious vacuum. And so Gentiles, God-fearers they were called would come to the synagogue and they'd sort of sit in the balconies, the way slaves did in the South. Slaves were invited to come into the white churches of the South if they sat in the balcony. They were quite segregated, so the Gentiles were rather segregated. And when Paul would go and speak to the synagogue, he would get a hostile response primarily from the Jews because they were basically fundamentalists, and he was offering them a very different perspective. But they'd get a great hearing from these Gentile proselytes, as they were called. And so they would be the ones that wanted to be part of this movement that Paul was starting. And so Paul was a a person who kept dividing up because the Jews weren't happy having Gentiles come into the church without being Jews first. That's the way it had been working, and now Paul was sort of offering them an opportunity to become Christians apart from ever touching the Jewish tradition. And so by 150, the Christian church was so Gentile that Marcion can be a factor. Now, the church condemned Marcion as a heretic, But by and large, they followed him, whether they condemned him or not. And the church became increasingly not just Gentile, but also anti-Semitic. And when it became a religion in the Roman Empire, it had to fight for its life. And this is where you get so many of the martyr stories. They had to find a way. They were not a legitimate religion. Jews were legitimate in the empire, but the Christians were not. So people had to very quickly make a decision about how much they would suffer for their new belief, and that was a very big part of of Christianity. But by 313, they had become legitimate in the empire. By 376, there was a, a different emperor who came back, and he made them illegitimate again. And so it went back and forth, and, you know, when they became legitimate, that's one thing, then they became the only legitimate religion within the empire, and so the Christians began to persecute the pagans just the way the pagans had persecuted the Christians. It wasn't a very noble period of our history. Anti-Semitism began to grow because Christians defined themselves against the Jews at this point, not recognizing that they are our mother, that's the womb in which we were born. You read the early fathers of the church, people like Jerome and Chrysostom and and uh, even Polycarp and Ignatius. Uh, they're so deeply anti-Semitic that they're embarrassing. I mean, they talk about the Jews as vermin that are unfit for life. It sort of sounds like politicians talking about the immigrants in, uh, in our world today. It's easy to look down on somebody who's disturbing the status quo. And as it developed, Christianity became more and more clearly defined, and then the Christians began to say, this is who we are, and if you don't believe the way we believe, there's something wrong with you. In time, and by the time you get to the 14th century, the Christians were burning at the stake their own heretics. You know, if you don't believe the standard line of the Christian faith, you don't qualify. And a number of the victims of the Inquisition in the 14th century were Jews because there's great pressure on them to convert, and so the pattern was that the Jews would convert publicly, but not privately. And privately, they would continue to have their Jewish rites and observe the Sabbath. And, and so in the thequisition, they were hounded out and burned at the stake. By the time you get to Luther, Martin Luther was as deeply anti-Semitic as anybody. And when Martin Luther translated the Scriptures into German... He also translated his own anti-Semitism into the German, and so you can see how Hitler finally comes to power, and then you get the Holocaust where some six million Jewish people are burned in the crematoriums, and this is a terrible history. And I don't know what you do except sort of confess your sin and bow before your Jewish brothers and sisters and ask them to forgive you and begin to draw us back. And fortunately, David, that's been happening from about... 1960 on, both the Christian side and the Jewish side, we began to see scholars moving toward each other. On the Jewish side, it would be people like Samuel Sandmel, who taught New Testament, at the University of Chicago Divinity School, who would write books like Paul the Jew. And you get a number of people on the Jewish side, you get a man named like Gezer Vermes, who started out his life as an Orthodox Jew, converted to Roman Catholicism, reconverted to Judaism, And so he saw it from both sides, and he began to write about the Jewishness of Jesus. You had Christopher Stendahl at Harvard. You had just a number of scholars on both sides. Today you've got Amy-Jill Levine, who teaches New Testament at uh, Vanderbilt Theological School, and she is Jewish, and she's a very popular teacher, and, and it's interesting to see how these two great faith traditions are beginning a rapprochement. I hope I've been part of that because I think that's essential. I think we've got to bring Judaism and Christianity together. The In Matthew's Gospel, what he was proposing was not to start something called Christian. What he's really proposing, and he was opposed by the Pharisees, but what he's really proposing is that Judaism becomes so open it embraces all human beings. And that was a very different vision. And Matthew sort of articulates that vision and the Pharisees begin to put rules in to say what you've got to do. You know, I still think that we've got a long way to go. I, I think we've got to get to the place where we take not only Jews and Christians but Muslims and and Hindus and Buddhists and all of the other great religions of the world and begin to find our common ground. I don't want to go to the lowest common denominator, but I want us to also go so deeply into our faith tradition we escape its human limits. God is not a Christian. God is not a Jew. God is not a Buddhist. But all of those are pathways which human beings created so that some people could walk into the mystery of God. If we walk faithfully in every tradition, we walk beyond the limits of our human religion, and then we'll begin to understand the dimensions, I think, of the whole God experience. To me, that's what the future of the human race is. And if we don't find that future, I think genocide is our primary alternative.
0: We're speaking today with Bishop John Shelby Spong about his new book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that your daughter has a PhD in physics, and that brought to mind the late Phyllis Tickle, a friend of mine in my family's and, and a friend of mine, friend I of say. Yours, as I'm sure. And she talked a lot about if people were going to be going to seminary in the 21st century, they should be required to study physics, they should be required to study science. I couldn't agree more. But what I'm interested in is that even as she was making statements like this about the retreading of theological education, she very diligently kept the liturgy of the hours. And so my question to you, Bishop Spong, is as we look at your wider project, your project of being very critical of the history and the interpretive history of Christianity – How does worship change as a result of this criticism, and and what stays the same in our liturgy and our faith life?
1: Well, I think it's all up for grabs. But, uh, you know, I attend church every Sunday of my life. I am deeply involved in it, and I really love it. There are some times where I have to twist my mind into a first-century pretzel in order to interpret what they're saying. I think we're at a turning point in Christian history, And the turning point is not about God. I think it's about our understanding of human life. It's about anthropology. Beginning in the 3rd and 4th century, I think primarily the work of Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, we concentrated on original sin. We said our mythology was that human beings were created perfect in the image of God, and they fell into sin by disobedience. They could not deliver themselves. They were warped by this sinful thing, and they had to wait for God to act, and God acted in the person of Jesus and brought salvation to the world, freed us. And the way God did it was to kill Jesus on the cross, which I think is a really strange idea. The divine Father kills the divine Son instead of punishing you and me because you and I cannot stand the punishment that we're due So God has to punish Jesus, who can stand it. So we go around saying really strange things like, Jesus died for my sins, which makes absolutely no sense. It turns God into a monster, it turns Jesus into a masochistic victim, and it turns you and me into guilt-filled human beings. And we practice that. That's the anthropology in our church. That's why we sing hymns like Amazing Grace. And the reason that God's grace is amazing is it saves a wretch like you and me— Over and over again in my church, and I think in most others, the primary way we relate to to God is to be on our knees, grovelling in a slave-like position, and all of this is based upon a view of human life as created perfect, only to fall into sin and now to be need in need of being saved or redeemed. Well, Charles Darwin came along in 1859, and Charles Darwin gives us a very different understanding of our origins. We were not created perfect. So we couldn't fall into sin. You can't fall from something you've never possessed. Darwin suggested, rather, that life emerged from, as a single cell about 3.8 billion years ago, and that over that period of 3.8 billion years, we emerged from single cells to groups of cells, which was an enormous step in evolution because every cell didn't have to perform every function of life, and so you can get cell specialization and you get a multiplicity of creatures And then at some point, this thing called life divided into an animate side and an inanimate side. And then at some point later on, the animate side produced primitive stages of consciousness. But that consciousness then began to grow. Uh, We see that all over the place. A clam certainly has less consciousness than than a dog. So we think nothing about putting a clam alive in a pot of boiling water to make clam chowder. But we wouldn't do that to our dog, because we recognize the dog as a, a more conscious creature. And then there came a time, and I think it's probably no more than about 250,000 years ago, that this animal that we were calling Homo sapien passed, passed over another stage of development that was gargantuan, and that is he passed from being a conscious creature to being a self-conscious creature. And suddenly he looked at the world from a point of view of a new center. He was not part of nature. He was an objective entity who could look out from his own or her own self on nature itself. And all sorts of issues began. We began to know, for example, that we would die. Never known an animal to write a will or to prepare a funeral service or to do any of the things that human beings do. Death is a uniquely human experience. And that's when we began to be frightened by the reality, and so we developed religions. And all religions at the very beginning were designed to help us escape the trauma of our self-consciousness. So we began to to do all sorts of things, like postulate a god created in our image, not the other way around, and work out all sorts of ways that we manipulate this god so this god would do our will. That's at the heart of all religion, and it still is a primitive part of of Christianity that, that we still run into all the time. And what what's going on, I think, is that we have, our consciousness is developed to a new dimension, and in that new dimension we see our humanity in a very different way. I am not a fallen sinner. I am an incomplete human being. I do not need to be saved. I do not need to be rescued. The last thing I want to have happen is for Jesus to die for my sins. What I need and what I want is the power to become so deeply and fully human, that I can be all that I'm capable of being. And that's a very different anthropology. And it's on this basis, I think, that the Christian faith of tomorrow will be different from the Christian faith of yesterday. We will get over original sin. We will punt it. It's dead. It needs to be gotten rid of. And we will see human life as simply potential And religion's task is not to rescue some fallen creature. Religion's task is to maximize the potential in our humanity. So when I think about God, I don't think about God as an old man in the sky in any theistic image. I think about God as the power of life calling me to live. I think of God as the power of love freeing me to love. I think of God as the ground of being, and that's a phrase I get from Paul Tillich giving me the courage to be all that I can be. And the task of the Christian life is to become so deeply and fully human that you recognize that you are part of who God is and God is part of who you are. Those are very different ways of understanding the Christian story. And Jesus might be one of those avatars, one of those people who cracked the boundary between subconsciousness and universal consciousness. And so he calls us beyond all of the boundaries of our fears into a new possibility for our humanity, and I think that's where the Christian faith is going to move, and I think it will be uh, the next stage of our evolution will be still in touch with our always evolving past, but we will sometimes have to recognize the fact that none of our stages of evolution can be literalized as the final word you know, that you don't have to be a Trinitarian or an incarnational person in order to be a Christian because the story is always changing and always growing. Well, Bishop Shelby Spong, thank you so much for taking some time to
0: speak to us today. I've really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you, David. I love being with you. We've been speaking
0: today with Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. He was Episcopal Bishop of Newark, New Jersey before his retirement in the year 2000. He's a visiting lecturer at Harvard and at universities and churches throughout North America and the English-speaking world. He's one of the leading spokespersons for liberal Christianity. We've been speaking today about his most recent book, Biblical Literalism, A Gentile Heresy. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media LLC with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. David Dalt engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Ables, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenow. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer.